Let me invite you, if you've got a copy of God's Word, to open it with me this morning to the book of Exodus. We'll be in Exodus chapter 19 today. And so today we return uh, to the story that we were in pre-COVID. The story we were reading and studying together on Sunday mornings during our worship gatherings, the story of Exodus, the story of God's rescuing love for His people. And so today we begin a new mini-series from this book, a new mini-series from the book of Exodus, uh, titled The Ten Commandments. Now our tendency perhaps is to jump right into those. We want to, uh, when we think of the Ten Commandments, we want to, to open them up, we want to read them, we want to know, okay, what are they? Um, what do they mean? What does it mean to break them? Uh, and am I supposed to continue uh, following these rules today? But before we do that, be- before we begin to, to read the specifics of the commandments, we need to know the context in which they were given. And so remember this story. Remember that uh, sometime before the book of Exodus, God appeared to a man named Abram, uh, who became Abraham, and he told Abram to go to a land that he would show him. Uh, he told him uh, that, his, uh, that his offspring would be numerous. In fact, on one occasion, he told them that they would be more, more numerous than uh, the stars in the sky. Uh, he told Abraham that he would, he would bless his family, that he would make them into a great nation, and that ultimately, through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But we fast forward a few generations. Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Joseph. And so Joseph, Abraham's great-grandson, winds up being sold by his brothers into slavery uh, in Egypt. But even there, in a foreign land, as a slave, the Lord is working out his promises. He's working out his plans. And Joseph receives favor in the eyes of the king of the land, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh. And Joseph uh, rises to a, a powerful position in the land. And sometime later, Joseph's brothers end up going to Egypt because there's a severe famine in the land. And as a result of the Lord's work, Through Joseph, Egypt has a stockpile of food. And so the Lord uses Joseph uh, to provide for his family. And the book of Genesis ends with Joseph's father, Jacob, and his brothers there in the land of Egypt, multiplying, becoming more and more numerous. But the book of Exodus begins in Exodus chapter 1 with the king of Egypt uh, becoming Uh, fearful that these Israelites, these descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, are going to become so numerous that they'll rebel against him and they'll leave the land. And he'll lose his labor force. And so he oppresses them in slavery. He continues to, to oppress them more and more harshly. But you know the story. God calls a man named Moses to go to confront the king And to call for Pharaoh to let the people go. And God uses Moses and his brother Aaron and a series of plagues to to soften Pharaoh's heart for a moment, for a day perhaps, and lead the Israelites out of the land of slavery in Egypt. But now they've been wandering through the desert, through the wilderness, toward the promised land. In fact, I think we have a picture that we can put on the screen of the traditional route of the Exodus. Now you can't see that all that well, but the red, if you can see the red that goes further south, 
uh, from Egypt in the upper left-hand corner of the screen and then across the northern part of the Red Sea and down the Gulf of Suez following uh, sort of the, the waterway there down to the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. In that region is the region that most scholars uh, or the many scholars think uh, the Israelites traveled as they uh, exited out of Egypt and toward the land of Canaan in the northeast of the map. Now, this is debatable. Many scholars uh, question this. We don't know exactly where Mount Sinai was, but uh, the traditional location of Mount Sinai is in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. I think we have even uh, a, a picture there of that mountain uh, known as Jebel Musa, which is uh, approximately 8,000 feet above sea level. It's the home of St. Catherine's Monastery today. Um, uh, an artist's depiction there of, of Mount Sinai, and I think maybe a, a final picture that shows just the terrain of the region there in the desert of Sinai. And so Exodus 19, where we're going to pick up the story today, is a turning point in this story where the Lord is preparing His people to receive His law, to receive His instruction. That is the Ten Commandments and all the particular instructions that go along with them. But before... God gives them the law. He reminds them who He is and what it is that He has done for them. And so let's hear from Him. As you find your place there in Exodus chapter 19, let me invite you uh, to join me standing as we read God's holy word. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6 will be our text for today. The Bible reads, On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt... On that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Would you bow with me? Father, we pray that you would guide us now that we might understand these words, your word. Guide us by the presence and power of your spirit, Lord, that we might hear what it is that you have for us today and apply it to our lives as your people. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So here they are. Here the Israelites are uh, in the desert. A difficult place to live, as you could see from the, the, the image there, the terrain, perhaps particularly, particularly so with such a large group of people, several hundred thousand men plus their families, with large herds of animals to feed and to water. They very well may have been uh, sort of a nomadic people for quite some time because they had to constantly be looking for more water and, and more grazing ground. They've been on the move for about seven weeks, and now they come to Mount Sinai, the place where God has already appeared to Moses in the burning bush. God is in charge here. 
God is showing his faithfulness here. He's leading them through the wilderness. He has provided and he will continue to do so. And so now he's calling these former slaves to serve him. He's calling them to to be his his people. He's going to show them his glory and he's going to give them his law. But before he does, he tells them just what he has done for them. And what he has done for them is rescue them. Sort of reminds me of a mom that's dealing with a a rebellious teenage child, uh, be it a son or a daughter. And uh, that that son is uh, rebelling against mom and dad. And so one day mom sits down that teenage son uh, and says to him, look, um, I carried you inside of me as you grew within me for nine months. Much of that time I was miserable as my body expanded and I fed you and I sacrificed for you. And then I gave birth to you and brought you home from the hospital and I changed your diapers and I fed you and I rocked you and I, I bathed you. I cared for you day after day after day. Providing for you. And this is the way it's going to be. Because of who I am and what I have done for you. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love you. And I will always love you because you're my child. But I brought you into this world. And I can take you out of this world too. Or something like that. You've heard that line. Some of you have heard that line. Friends, one of the central messages of the Bible is that God is a rescuing God. God rescues. God rescues. He he comes to the aid of His people and He delivers them from their enemies. He says to them, essentially, you saw what I did for you. You saw how I rescued you from slavery. You saw how I defeated your enemies for you. You saw how I accomplished the impossible for you and how I brought you now to this place, this mountain, the place where I appeared to Moses. You've seen now how I've brought you to this place so that you can meet with me, that you may know me as your God. You see, the deliverance from Egypt was not just about rescuing the Israelites from a foreign land. Certainly it was that, but it was also about bringing them near to the Lord. It's about bringing them near to God before he ever gives them the law that is the specifics of what he requires of them as his people. God is establishing the terms of the relationship that he desires to have with his people, with those he has rescued. Friend, have you been rescued by God? Have you been rescued by this same God? You see, the Lord rescuing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt was part of his plan to rescue you and to rescue me. To to rescue a people from every nation, tribe, people, and language from slavery to sin. Ultimately, it would be through these people, through, through the offspring of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that God would send a Savior to rescue sinners like us and to reconcile us to himself. In fact, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, as we read the scriptures, as we hear them taught, don't miss the rescuing heart of God. See, the truth is is God is not a heavy-handed, iron-fisted ruler, eager and ready to zap all who disobey Him. 
He is, as we've seen again and again and again in His Word, gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Friends, God rescues. He's a rescuing God. God rescues and then God gives the rescued His Word. God gives the rescued His Word. God says, you saw what I did to deliver you and bring you close to me. Verse 5, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. And preacher and scholar Philip Ryken says this, he says, what God has done for us in history is the basis of what he expects from us today. What God has done for us, what He has already accomplished on our behalf, what He has already done for us, what He has done for us is the basis of what He expects from us today. I remember a friend from college, in fact a teammate, as we both played on the tennis team there at Washtenaw Baptist, and I remember having an opportunity with this particular teammate to talk about what it means to know and to follow Jesus, and he uh, welcomed a conversation about that for a time, but as we talked about that, he, he kept getting hung up on uh, the particulars of what God prohibited from his people. The particular standards and boundaries that he did not want to get past. He, he, he went there first, the specifics, and, and we have a tendency sometimes, I think, to, to look at the specific commands of God. Uh, do not lie, do not lust, uh, care for the poor. And then decide whether or not we believe those are legitimate and worthwhile demands of us. Or whether or not we can worship a God who draws certain boundaries and holds such standards. And if that's not a God we're comfortable with, we tend to dismiss Him. But that's not the way that God presents Himself. It's not the way that God reveals Himself here to His people. Notice that God doesn't give His law to His people. Don't worship other gods. Don't misuse my name. Set apart the Sabbath day, honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, on and on. He doesn't give these specifics to his people and then say to them, this is what I will require from you if you want to be my people. Are you up for the challenge? Is that something that you want to sign up for? It's not how it happens. God says, you saw how I rescued you. You saw how I saved you. You saw how it delivered you and now I'm asking you to devote yourselves fully to me. And soon the people would respond together in verse 8. We will do everything the Lord has said. We we don't know what he's going to say. We don't know what he's going to ask of us. We're going to do everything that he has said. Because they had seen his power. Because they had experienced his rescue and because they had felt his love. So they were ready to trust him and to obey him. They were ready to hear his law and to respond with submission and service. Let me ask you this morning, do you trust the God of the Word? Do you trust the God of the Word? God is calling us to trust Him. He's calling us to, to believe Him, just as God rescued the Israelites and then gave Him His law. So God has rescued us from sin, and now He has taught us how to live for His glory. See, the ancient Israelites weren't saved by works any more than we are saved by works. It's always been by grace through faith. If obedience had to precede salvation, then none of us would have ever been saved. God shows us His saving character. He calls us to trust Him. And then He expects us to obey Him in order to experience the fullness 
of his blessing. That feels like a lot of pressure. If you obey me fully. Who can do that? Who who has done that? None of us. In fact, in a very short time, these very same people promising to worship and obey the Lord will be requesting a golden calf to be formed as the object of their praise. Their fellowship with God would be disrupted by sin just as ours is when we sin against Him. This is more than just about the feeling of closeness to God. God's justice really does require, it really does demand full obedience, which is, of course is why he's given them his detailed law as the condition of the covenant relationship that he's made with them. His standard is perfection. But these Israelites came no closer to perfect obedience than you and me and every sinner to walk the earth. Like us, they too failed miserably. But God knew this. He knew this. It did not derail His plan nor deter His rescuing love. He knew the depth of our sin. Thus, His law served to prepare us to receive their Savior, our Savior, the one who could and would obey God's law with perfect obedience. The one who would offer His perfect obedience for us, mediating a new covenant relationship between God and sinners. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, the Bible says, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet He did not sin. Jesus the Christ took on human flesh, the fullness of God in human flesh, who mediates our relationship with the Father, the one who ultimately gave His life, who facilitated the sacrifice and who was the sacrifice for us, the perfect sacrifice, because He was the only one who was tempted as we are and yet did not sin. And so He could offer His obedience to God for us. Paul says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Church, here's the point. We have kept the covenant in Jesus Christ. Jesus has done it for us. He has given His obedience to the Father for us. He has taken the penalty of breaking God's law for us. He has delivered us from sin and He's washed us clean and He has provided us forgiveness forever. Therefore, friends, as recipients of such rescuing grace, we strive to live our lives for His glory. As recipients of such mercy, how could we not want to honor our Savior? And so we stand eager and ready to receive His word. Church, we must be a people of the Word because we have experienced the love of God revealed in the Word. This God is a rescuing God. God rescues, God gives the rescued His Word, and then God commissions the rescued to witness to the world. God rescues, God gives the rescued His Word, and then He commissions the rescued to witness to the world. Look back at at Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
We could spend a lot of time on these three descriptions, treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. But the overarching message is this. You will be my precious people for a special purpose. You're going to be my precious people, God says, for a special purpose. God is saying, I've rescued you because I love you. In fact, this, this word translated here, treasured possession, is used to describe the worldly riches of kings. A couple other places in the Old Testament, it, it, it refers to, to the riches of kings. In other words, it means royal property. God is saying that his people are his royal property and his most prized possession. And for God to describe Israel as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation is to say that the Israelites were called to be God's priests to the world and a light to the Gentiles. It is that he chose them from the nations, but for the nations. That just as he had promised Abraham through them, all nations of the earth would be blessed. It is to say that they are his plan to spread salvation to the rest of the world. And Christian, I would say the same is true now for you. Our Savior The one who descended from Israel commissioned his followers to be a light to the nations, saying in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, Jesus said, to the very end of the age. You see, like Israel in Moses' day, Christians today have been rescued and called and commissioned to bear witness to the rest of the world of God's saving grace. Peter helps make the connection for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but you, church, you people, you followers of Jesus are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, sounds familiar, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He says, church, you are God's special possession. You're a kingdom of priests. You're a chosen people. You're you're a, a holy nation that you may tell the rest of the world what God has done for you, the riches of his grace. Peter goes on in verse 12. He says, live such good lives among the pagans. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Friends, we serve a rescuing God. A God who has rescued us, delivered us, saved us by his grace. God rescues, God gives the rescued his word. God commissions the rescued to witness to the world. Have you been rescued? Have you been rescued by the grace of God Receive the rescuing grace of God today offered to you and to me through Jesus Christ, His Son, our Savior. Are you rescued? Have you been rescued? Are you receiving His Word? As one who's been saved by His grace, has has your heart been turned toward Him? Have you bowed before Him and said, Lord, I want to follow You. Show me the way. Are you receiving His Word? Take in His Word. And are you sharing His Word that others might hear this gospel and come to know 
the rescuing heart of God. Friends, God saves us so that we might live for His glory. God saves us so that we might live for His glory. He delivers us. He rescues us. He forgives us. He gives good blessings to us. He gives eternal life to us. Ultimately, He saves us so that we might live for His glory, so that we might know Him and make Him known. Are you living for the Savior's glory? Are you living for the Savior's glory? Father, help us to live for your glory today. Father, help us to live our lives and spend our lives to make much of you. Lord, that we might be a light to the nations. Father, that that we would notice your character. Father, show yourself to us again and again and again through your word, Lord, that we might see your rescuing love, that we might see your gracious character, your compassion, your kindness, your patience with us, and that we might bow before you and be hungry for your word, that we might know you and live for your glory and declare the riches of your grace. Father, lead us to do just that. Father, help us, convict us, guide us, Equip us, encourage us to live our lives for you. And so, Lord, as we sing together now, as we express our faith, our trust, our commitment to you through song, we pray that you would hear our praise and be glorified in it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.